This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Parenting ADHD Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Randy Coleman, and I am super excited about having this conversation with him today about technology and video games and kids with ADHD. And I think both the positives and negatives, there are a lot of positive aspects, and we're going to talk about that. I think that um, that's something really good for parents to to be aware of as well. And um, Dr. Coleman's work certainly um, supports that. So Dr. Coleman is the founder and president of Learning Works for Kids, an educational technology company that specializes in using video games to teach executive functioning and academic skills. For the past 25 years, Dr. Coleman has also been the clinical director and president of South County Child and Family Consultants, a multidisciplinary group of private practitioners that specialize in assessment and interventions for children with learning disorders and attention difficulties. Additionally, Dr. Coleman is the author of numerous essays and book chapters on the use of digital technologies for improving executive functioning skills in children. He's an advisor and occasional writer for Attitude Magazine, commonsensemedia.org, and Tokaboka. He's the author of two books, Train Your Brain for Success, A Teenager's Guide to Executive Functions, and Playing Smarter in a Digital World. Dr. Coleman, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Benny. I'm excited about talking about these issues as well. Yeah, I think I want to start by talking about um, the science of play and why play is so important. I think in our culture, we've gotten away from that somewhat. Um, And I think sometimes people feel like technology has pulled us away from that. But I know that it is super valuable in the development of our kids. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, some of the most prominent Developmental psychologists essentially equate play with learning in younger children so that when kids play, they're learning. That's how, how they, they pick up things in their world, whether that's playing peekaboo and learning a little bit about you know where someone is in object permanence or whether they're playing a card game with their grandparents when they're you know four or five or six years old and they're learning some memory skills and some problem-solving skills or even you know in a different way. I think that play has been a a way for generations uh, of children to learn adult roles, whether that be learning roles as a parent, uh, how many kids play school all the time, and and they're learning from that. Uh, And and actually, if you want to extrapolate a little bit more, you can even think about some of the play that kids engage in today that's more digital in nature. And that how that's preparing them for a new set of roles as well. I mean, sure. if all if all kids did is play cowboys and 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 and, and, and Native Americans, I have to be I have to be careful <laughs> how I say these things from my old from my own childhood, fifty five or sixty years ago. But if if all kids did is play those kinds of games, they wouldn't be preparing for roles that they might be having in in today's world. So it's it's a powerful 
powerful part of kids' life. I actually, this is kind of a little bit of an aside, but I've always been interested in play, and, and part of you know what I do now is is look at digital play, you know, using video games, social media apps, any kind of technology, but. But uh, part of this came from uh, my own experience as an undergraduate student uh, many years ago at the University of Rochester, where my mentor was a psychologist by the name of David Elkind, who's really a very famous developmental psychologist, has done all kinds of work on play. And then even when I did a master's thesis, and I didn't really think about this at the time, my, my master's thesis was focused on looking at the difference between watching Sesame Street versus Mr. Rogers in terms of creative play that kids might display wow. later. So I've always had this sort of interest in play and kind of it's, it's sort of emerged over the last 15 to 20 years where it became about digital play, about you know the technology play that kids engage in. Mm-hmm. And what benefits do our kids get from different types of play in the digital world? Well, I think the first thing to consider when we talk about digital play or the kind of play that we have today is that it's just a different form of play. People like to talk about it as being lesser than other forms of play, Mm -hmm. that if kids spend their time with games and technologies, then they're not getting something from the world that they would get from being engaged in other types of play. So when I think about play, I actually think about there being sort of five broad categories of play. I think about there being Physical play, getting outside, running around, sports, those kinds of sure. you know physical activities. I think about there being social play. Social play is stuff when you're doing it with other people, when you're engaged with other people and whatever whatever you're doing, there's a social component, an interactive component. I think about creative play, where you're just kind of creating new things, kind of building, uh, that you know, using Legos, those kinds of things where you're, where you're doing something else. A fourth type of play is more unstructured play, where there's no real rules to it. It's kind of it's very open-ended, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the fifth type of play is what I now call digital play, which is using games and technology and apps. But it's also other kinds of things too. It might be taking digital photographs. It could be uh, texting a friend. It could be uh, creating a video for YouTube. Those are those are all forms of, of digital play. And in all those forms of play, there's many opportunities for learning and many opportunities for growth, development, creativity. Yeah, absolutely. My son uses digital technology, too, to create music. Um, He has apps where he creates digital music, more like um, DJ, house music kind of things. But he's found a real passion in that just by exploring what technology had to offer and trying things out. Absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a, an awful misconception out there that digital play facilitates less creativity than other forms of play. Um, there's a, a a psychologist, and I am blocking on her name right now. This is terrible. I'll come up with it later. Mm-hmm. Who works at Case Western? And I'm terrible. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting her name. No problem. Uh, who has done research on creativity? Over the last thirty or forty years, and, and and what they did, what they did is they basically they and they did a study recently with essentially what they said is that let's take a look at the videotapes we have of kids playing from the nineteen eighties and before to see how creative their play was, with the idea that kids who play nowadays, and the study I think was done around maybe two thousand ten or two thousand eight, where they looked at 
the creativity of those kids. Now, the assumption was that digital kids, if you will, the, the, the kids from the, the last decade or so, were going to display less creativity in their play. Well, guess what? It was the exact opposite. Uh, because digital play allows for so much more exploration. It allows for so many other things to happen. Just like you, what you're saying about your son, making music. How about making videos? Think about that. Mm-hmm. Think about kids who learn coding skills, and they actually make their own games. And they I make mean, a living at it. Yeah, they make a living at it. But, but yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so well, there's so many technology jobs, so that there's gonna be that kind of stuff. But but it, there, there, there's so many ways that 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 technology can be helpful in that regard. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is that that's important here is that. When kids are creating with digital media, they can save it in some ways. They can, they can, they can, they can, they can make it different. They can adjust it. They can kind of tweak it. So that even adds to creativity as well. Whereas it's kind of hard to. I, I guess you can go build a fort outside, but it's hard to put an addition on the fort in some ways. But it's not that difficult to do that when you create a, a YouTube channel, when you create other when you create music, and then you say, "Well, I'm going to change." part of that. And, and so that flexibility that, that, that digital play affords is, is incredible as well. Mm-hmm. And doesn't that play into helping with some executive functioning skills, going, being able to go back and edit yourself? And Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, one of the, one of the, the things that, um, that I'm very interested in is how can we use digital play to improve executive functioning skills? That's, uh, if I can give you a little bit of history. Yeah. Uh, so, I would say 20, maybe even a little bit more, 25 years ago almost, I started becoming interested in, in digital play with kids. And, and actually at one point, uh, thought about creating some software back in the early 90s. We were going to create a, a little program called A Day in the Life where a kid kind of walked through the kinds of basic functions that they had to do at home and school, and they get to play little games in between. This is back when video games were very primitive in nature. Right. Uh, and then we started doing some other stuff in the office where we were actually having kids play games like Roller Coaster Tycoon to teach them problem-solving skills. So we had a group of kids. We did group therapy with kids. We'd have them play a game together. They'd all be plan and then we would start discussing the skills they were using in the game over the course of time i became really aware of a couple of things one is how much kids were involved with games and technology most of the kids i see are kids with adhd with autism spectrum disorders with with learning disabilities i began to and and i because i asked the kids what do you like to do one of the things that happens as a psychologist is who's doing testing is that we target problems. So kids come to my office and it's like, what's your problem, child? It's kind of what we're saying. I'm very careful to not do it that way. But I make a very big emphasis in my work with kids to always talk about what are their strengths, what are their interests, what are they good at, asking the parents those kinds of things. I'll, I'll say to a parent, what makes Johnny special? What is Johnny really good at? What you know, and, and really, and I engage the kids in these kinds of conversations for a good part of our session because I want them to feel positive about themselves. So many of these kids with uh, these kinds of attentional issues love games and technology. I began to think, how can we use these technologies to help these kids? And I, as, I, as, as the kids taught me, because that's really how I learned, because I have to give you a disclaimer. I'm not really a gamer. I play a few games. I mean, I certainly use a million apps and I'm on technology all the time, but I'm not really an avid gamer. Right. 
So the, what I began to realize from the kids is that the games that they loved the most were the games that required a variety of executive functioning skills. They really need, in order to be successful in many games, to use skills like cognitive flexibility. Planning is, a, is an enormously important skill in many games. Organization, some of the games that are, that are like multi, massive multiplayer games where they have to organize materials and kind of make sure they have enough stuff to gain new lives and gain, new, gain health and, 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 and gain uh, money and things like that that they can use in the game. So there's lots of skills that are used. Uh, working memory is used in many games. So I began to realize that many of these executive functioning skills are used in the games. I also then asked myself, the next question was, okay, well... If these kids are using all these skills in the game, how come they're not getting so much better with these skills and not coming to visit me in my office? Right. Well, that's a good question. And, 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 and essentially, I think the recognition is, is that these games afford an opportunity to practice executive functioning skills in the game. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is I started thinking about how can we actually take those game-based skills and make it into real-world learning. And that's really the premise of what we do at Learning Works for Kids. We tell parents and educators, here's some games that practice these skills. But we don't say, hey, if your kid goes and plays one of the Legend of Zelda, Legend of Zelda games, they're going to get really a lot better at planning. And they do need to use a lot of planning in those games. What we say is, we need to help take those skills that are game-based and make them into real-world skills. So we walk through a whole process with the kids. We Sometimes we'll show the kids a video that tells them what skills are going to be using in the game so they can kind of be sort of alerted or previewing those skills. Then we kind of go from that and give parents questions to ask about the game. So they don't, if, if the parents want to play the game, that's fantastic. But at least they know the right kinds of questions to ask about these skills. And then we give parents activities that practice those skills outside of the game. And our thinking is, and I think this is pretty sound thinking, especially with younger kids. With older kids, it might not be so, so important. But with, with younger kids, that engaging them with the game is a great way to learn a skill. We can talk about the game. The kids love to talk about their video gameplay. And then we can talk about how they can use that skill in the real world. And then we give them real practice activities. That, you know, One of the most difficult things that we have in psychology in general, whether that's in therapy or other kinds of things, is we have this need to generalize or transfer a skill from one place to another. And that's very difficult. So that process of generalization is extremely difficult. And that's sort of what we're trying to do with Learning Works for Kids. Right. So to take it from that play in that digital environment and help them to be able to translate that into the real world and use it to help them improve some of their lagging skills, like executive, not only executive functioning skills, but I think social skills too. You know, a lot of what experts teach to improve social skills is to maybe watch a television show or a movie with your child and talk about why certain characters did things or how they felt when something happened to them. And so I think, you know, we can certainly do the same thing with gaming and um, with other things online, you know, videos and whatever else our kids are engaging in there. Absolutely. I I think that using Using games to teach social skills is, 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 is a wonderful opportunity to do that, both in terms of some of the 
online games that kids are playing with each other, uh, and in many other ways. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're actually talking a lot more on our website about social-emotional learning skills now. We're really thinking about how, do, how can we apply these same principles to those skills. Uh, one of the things that I actually recommend is, is you know, using technology, as you were saying, like watching television. One thing that I suggest, actually, sometimes to parents is to record something uh, and, then sh- and watch it with your child, but shut the sound off. So they're just looking at the facial expressions and the movements of the idea. characters. And then they kind of can say, what, predict, what were they saying? What were they doing? And then afterwards, watching the same kind of thing. Actually, what's even more interesting than watching like a sitcom or something like that is watching uh, commercials and doing that. Because oh, in gosh. commercials, it's a, so you get the kids to kind of look at that. And, and it's kind of a fun game just to yeah. do. So, so yeah, there's, there's lots of ways to, to, to use these technologies to help kids with skills because they're engaged, too. I mean, that's, that's part of what makes teaching, with these, teaching these kinds of skills with games so much more powerful than other, than other, other methods. I, I, uh, I came up with a term. I call it engagement. Not engagement, but engagement. When kids are engaged and immersed in the games, they're more attentive, they're more focused, they're, they're more persistent, they're, they're, in, they're in the flow, if you will, of it, and they learn more. So, you know, when we can use games like that, they can be very powerful tools. Right now, most of the games that we have and what we, what we look at at Learning Works for Kids are real popular games. So we're not really ter- terribly interested, at least at this point, in some of the apps and stuff that are made specifically for kids with ADHD, autism, spectrum disorders, although we're looking at that. But that, you know, that what, what, what happens is those games are really not made with this in mind. And at some point, we're hoping that we'll see more of those games where some of these skills are more in the forefront and maybe some efforts are made to sort of embed methods to transfer the skills. In other words, they start to do that. So, for example, there's, a, there's a, uh, an organization called iThrive. And iThrive is trying to make games for teenagers that will enhance social-emotional learning skills. And so what they're doing is they're working with game developers to sort of embed something in the game, make fun games, because because it has to be fun. If you try to give a kid, you know, it's kind of like giving medicine to a kid. You don't want to give medicine that doesn't taste good. I like to think about it like, I say, we want to add a little digital nutrition to, to the game, sort of like, you know how they have calcium and orange juice, that kind of thing. Right. We, want, we want it to taste like orange juice. If there's a little calcium, great. So that's part of what we have to do with games, but if we can embed a little bit of that in some games, and, and, and game developers are just starting to do that now, we might see these games be even more helpful in and of themselves, forgetting about having parents or teachers or other mediators sort of come between the game and the real world to help with that transfer of learning. Ways I think that we can take what kids are doing and sort of enhance it, if you will. I mean, first by you know we can curate some of what, they, what they're playing and looking at in terms of educational games. Uh, one of the things that we just started to do at Learn with for Kids is uh, we'll actually be opening this up in, in in January. Is we're doing moderated Minecraft play. So. Oh, wow. What we do, we're 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 essentially we're, what we're trying to do right now is we're looking for groups of kids who come from the same geographical area, maybe associated with like an autism project or something like that. And we're originally going to target this towards kids affected by autism, but we will shortly thereafter open it up to other kids as well. And essentially what we have is we have a couple of, I'll call them gamer guides. These are our, our college students who are trained in psychology, executive functions, but they're Minecraft players. They love Minecraft. And they're essentially going to, 
play Minecraft with a group of kids. And as they play, they're going to have projects each time. And, and again, this sort of sprinkling in a little bit of digital nutrition. They'll, they'll talk a little bit. Well, today we're going to build a, you know, uh, you know, we're going to build a, a, a set of buildings over here. And we're going to be using the skill of planning. And they're going to just talk a little bit about that. And aside from that, just teach them how to play Minecraft and work together as a, as a team. So, you know, that kind of moderated way of using a game gives you a chance to use it to sort of build some skills. And and, and certainly Minecraft's been used to build all kinds of other educational skills. Oh, yeah. Used for mathematics, it's used for physics, it's used for uh, history. I mean, all kinds of things that Minecraft has been great for. But it can also be used for for building these kinds of skills as well. So that's a, a project that we'll, we'll be starting. Uh, I've got all the materials ready, and uh, I'm just waiting to send out stuff until after the holidays and let people know about it. So yeah, that's it's, it's fascinating. A, I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we're excited about it. We're really excited about it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what games you would recommend. What games do you feel like have the most value for kids who have ADHD or executive functioning delays or even uh, maybe some high functioning autism or learning disabilities? Well, well, let's 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 start with Minecraft. I mean, I, I you know, I, I Minecraft is an incredibly great game for kids. I mean, part of it is the sandbox nature of it, so it's open ended and there's so so much opportunity for creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly engages of you know all kinds of kids in <laughs> uh, with it, and but the kid you know kids with ADHD sometimes are maybe almost a little bit too engaged, which can be a concern. Right. Um, you know there are, there are some you know other games that are similar to that. There are building that are building games. So I'm looking at I, as as you're asking me this. I'm, what I'm doing is I'm just looking at the Learning Works for Kids website because it kind of organizes it for me. So yeah. Well, so I'm looking at another one that's actually a very similar game to to my quest is called Dragon Quest Builders, which mm-hmm. is a, I think is a very good game. Um, I'm gonna just hold on one second. I'm going. I want to. Um, just search these by their ratings. We, one of the things that we we do at Learning Works for Kids is we um, we give we give each game what we call an LQ or a learning quotient, where we combine how much fun is it. That's sort of the brain score. Excuse me, the, the fun score, and then right. and the second part is the brain score. So we sort of combine the two. Uh, some other games, simple games like Bad Piggies, is it is it. Is 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 a is you know something that we recommend for kids with ADHD. This is an old classic game called Braid. Braid Two is another game that uh, we feel as if is really good for kids with ADHD. One of the things I think is great for kids with ADHD are any of the active games. So mm-hmm. any of the old Wii sports games, uh, the Connect games where there's boxing and movement. I think right. I mean one of the things that you know you and I know a lot about with ADHD is we know how powerful exercise is. The data is yes. in incredibly strong i mean john rady's book spark mm-hmm. which is by the way that's 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 my rhode island la- language here i'm uh, i'm trying to say an r in there because we don't say <laughs> r's in rhode island i don't know how we could have a state with rhode island with an r in it because we say spark okay and there's no r in spark right that's, right I don't mean I don't mean from the Star Trek character either, but S P A R K uh, by John Rady is a mm-hmm. great book to help parents learn about the power of exercise for kids with ADHD. So any kind of uh, video game that the kid is vi- physically active in can be helpful, and there's some great research that actually suggests that that helps kids. Uh, what's actually you know what's actually interesting about that too? Another way to look at this is that there's some pretty compelling data as well. 
that suggests that kids who play sports games tend to play more sports. So really? a kid with ADHD, yeah, who goes out and plays sports games is more likely to go out and, and become physically active. Now, you know, this, this is just a, just a couple of studies. So I don't know if it's just correlational that, you know, kids who like to play sports play more sports games or what it is. But nonetheless, right. if your kid's playing sports games, it's probably going to encourage them to go out and, and try some of those moves and try some of that stuff. And we know that's good for kids with ADHD. Yeah. So, and, and then I think there's a whole other approach to this that you can look at. You asked me about games, but what I would say to you is that one of the things that we want to do uh, is not just look at games that might practice a skill or do something that helps kids, you know, with movement and other kinds of things. But there are lots of apps out there that are really not games per se, but that can support weak executive functioning skills or support mm-hmm. some of the difficulties that many kids have with ADHD. You know, so, for example, you know, apps that can help with organization, apps that can help with planning, apps that can help with time management. So, you know, those are some of the things. Like apps that can help kids even with self-regulatory things, with emotional kinds of issues as well. You know, so that could be even an app that's uh, it's one of one of them that we that we post on Learners Kids is called Calm. But it's like, you know, apps that can teach kids meditation skills. Right. Uh, apps that can teach kids mindfulness skills. So all those kinds of things that can be very powerful uh, technologies that can help kids with ADHD. Yeah, I mean, I think technology is not a bad thing necessarily as long as it's used appropriately and as long as your child is also engaged in the other parts of childhood that are important, the physical activity, the um, spending time with peers and other people in person um, socially. But, you know, I, I am of the opinion that technology is a huge benefit in many ways to individuals who have some of these sort of weaknesses like inattention and learning disabilities and executive functioning delays. Um, my son has severe executive functioning deficits, and he uses an iPad now in school. He takes pictures of his worksheets, he has his Apple Pencil, and he completes them. So we don't have lost assignments. Um, you know, before this year, before he was doing that, he was doing some of his homework two, three, four times, the same the same worksheets um, because of that executive functioning struggle. So, you know, there's all kinds of great ways that we can use these tools to help our kids. And I think especially in areas where they won't necessarily fully develop those skills. You know, ADHD is a physiological difference in the brain. It's for life. And so, you know, finding coping mechanisms and strategies with technology to fill in those gaps is amazing. I mean, I think, you know, we use the tools that are available and we can make a big difference. Yeah, we can. Actually, let me let me take what you said and and, and sort of take it in a little bit of a different direction, if okay. you don't mind, which is, Absolutely. is that, and, and I think this is kind of relates back to what you were saying about your son and music, is that if we find that technology and engagement with screens is a place where kids who have a diagnosis of ADHD are very focused, they're very persistent, and they're really not showing many of the symptoms of ADHD, why don't we start thinking about how 
We can steer them in towards careers and towards towards ways of learning that use that. Why mm-hmm. why would we not do that? I mean, so I mean, I think that you know, I, in my work with parents of kids with ADHD, I say your biggest job here is going to be to steer your kid to places where ADHD either has a very minimal impact or the child's ADHD may actually help them. I mean, one of the things we right. know about kids with ADHD and adults with ADHD, they actually have a higher success rate of being successful entrepreneurs than mm-hmm. to people who don't have, you know, who are typically developing, who don't have that. Now, if they're in the right place, they have to be in the right place. So I think it's right. Russell Barkley who said that ADHD is a disorder of intention, not attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you know, if technology happens to be an area where your kids are, you know, where a kid with ADHD is really engaged and, and, and really loves it, can we use it in some ways? Now, unfortunately, there is a flip side to that. And, you know, you're, you're sort of alluding to that here in that many parents do have concerns that their kids with ADHD can get overly engaged with technology. And we know that kids with ADHD, kids with autism spectrum disorders can get involved in highly repetitive behaviors. We know that addictive behaviors are, occur more frequently in this population. So there are some risks and dangers with this, obviously. But there's also so many opportunities. And I think sometimes we forget about those opportunities because we're so frightened of the risks. Right. We let the fear control us, the what ifs sometimes, for sure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there has to be a balance there, of course. Your child can't be gaming every hour of every day. They can't be up in the middle of the night. You know, Mm -hmm. there, there are all kinds of signals for parents when it might be becoming a problem. But what I wanted to communicate is that don't avoid it out of fear, because it could be a great tool. And, you know, you could be able to moderate it very well, you know, it could be very beneficial and not at all a problem. Um, And I want you know, parents to consider that, to consider that it really could be more beneficial than harmful if used correctly and moderated. Um, And I, you know, what you were talking about goes along with what I teach parents and that you have to focus on what they're good at and what they're interested in, and you have to nurture that. Give Mm -hmm. them tons of opportunities in the areas where they feel successful, um, where they're super interested and motivated. And a lot of times, parents will say, well, you know, all he wants to do is play video games. Well, there's a lot of ways to nurture that in a positive respect. Start learning coding, um, learning animation, the art factor. Um, You know, there's just so many different ways that they can take that and make something more positive out of it and and have it be, you know, a positive thing in a child's life. So I think that there's just a lot of ways to really harness the power of that without having to worry too much about it swinging too far in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that sort of leveraging that interest in technology to help kids to do other things becomes important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the things that uh, I wrote about in my my last book, Playing Smarter in Digital World, and actually, I don't think I told you this earlier, but I'm in the process of writing a, 
uh, I, I actually I'm in the process of writing two books. One one is, and I, I, this one we don't have time to talk about today. One is all about processing speed issues in in kids, mm, yeah, uh, which is a pretty common thing. I've been writing a ton of blog posts about that, and yeah. I and I, I realized I've written so many blog posts that I really had a book there. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, you know, so I kind of, I'm right now just sort of picking the, the spots where I have to finish some, some areas and I've got kind of a book that's, that's kind of organized. But anyway, that's not even the book I'm talking about. The book I'm talking about is something I'm calling Too Much Minecraft, uh, mm-hmm. how, to, how to develop a healthy and balanced play diet for kids in a, in a digital world, something like that. I don't have the, yeah. the subtitle down yet, but the Too Much Minecraft I like a lot. And the concept that I, that I want to really focus on in this book is around what I call a, a healthy play diet. Mm-hmm. So that, that my emphasis to parents is not so much about how do you set screen time limits, which is important to know how to do in there and certainly to have some strategy around that. But more important is how do you foster and nurture a healthy play diet that's balanced? In other words, a play diet is like how do you make, you know, think about a, think about, you know, a nutritional diet, you know, how do you have enough protein and how do you have enough calories, but not too many calories? How do you, how do you get the kids to eat enough fruits and vegetables? Well, with a healthy play diet, what we're really talking about is in a digital world, how do we make sure that we get enough of that other kind of play involved? I was saying before about physical play and social play and unstructured play and creative play. Exactly. How do we make that happen? And and you know and 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 it's not that easy in today's world. And I'm not just talking about kids with ADHD. I mean, it's with kids in general. I mean, sure. digital media is so immersive. It's so engaging. It's while while levels of addiction to these kinds of things is a concern. DSM mm-hmm. uh, five recently introduced the internet gaming disorder as an you know an addiction. Wow. The data is that maybe four percent of kids. The high end I've seen is 8% of kids in the U.S. have some of those issues. But lots of parents have concerns about their kids being over-involved with that. And it's legit. However, sure. I think that the, 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 the strategies around that should, should have to start from a different perspective than setting limits, but more about how do you encourage those other kinds of activities, those other kinds of play. How do you make those things happen? Mm-hmm. And then there's also a question of how can you actually use kids interested in digital media and technology to maybe enhance some of those other types of activities. So, for example, you know, using a fitness, uh, you know, a fitness band to help with exercise and, 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 and movement. You know, how do, you know, how can you how can you make that kind of stuff happen? How can you use a kid's interest in in as you, it's kind of what you were saying before in playing video games into an interest in coding to an interest in creating videos to an interest in creating music? Yeah. Uh, how can you know, how can you do those kinds of things? So can we leverage some of those interesting technology? And that's sort of what I'm writing about. I mean, I've got lots of ideas, you know, about about ways to make that happen. But also, what do parents need to do in today's world to make some of that that some of that stuff happen too? I actually think that parents need to look in the mirror uh, about their kids' use of media in a couple of different ways and kind of say how are they responsible, not just kind of our culture and and the, and the presence of media. One is how much media are they using. How much time are they spending in front of screens? You know, uh, how many, how many, how many of these parents uh, are, you know, are Netflix bingers? You know, yep. 
you know, I, I, I was making fun of my wife for a while. She was, she became a Netflix binge. I'm almost embarrassed to say this because this will be public now that I'm saying this. <laughs> she was watching Shameless, which I, I said to her, you're watching Shameful again because I don't know if you've, <laughs> if you, I don't know if you've seen that show, but it's Shameful if you ask me. And no. I'm not, I'm not a prude or a moralist or anything like that. It's just like, but you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's addicting. It's like, you know, it's, you know, people just kind of watch and watch and watch. I, I try, I try try really hard not to do that. We, we are discussing whether, you know, I'm willing to give a shot at watching, I guess, Stranger Things is one of the Netflix shows. And I, and I have an interest in watching Game of Thrones because I read the books. So I'm sort of interested in that, but I just kind of tried to stay away because I see how addictive, if you will, how engaged people get this is like this binging is not it's it's not unusual so anyway my point being i, I get off talk talk of this sorry no is, i think it uh, all pulls together so that, that that the parents need to look at how much time they're spending in front of screens mm-hmm. and what they're doing so that's one issue but a second one that's a little bit more subtle but i think is actually more important in many ways is that parents don't let the kids go out and play you know, we were talking earlier about play, right. important play is, well, we're also worried about safety issues and mm-hmm. those kinds of things that if you let your kid really go out and play, at least the way I went out and played when I was younger, you're a bad parent. I mean, yeah. my, my mother, who's very incredibly protective still, you know, it, you know, when I was out playing until the lights turned on at night, you know, yeah. and then I had to go. She didn't know where I was. Yeah. I was in the neighborhood playing with other kids. If you let a kid get on a bike and go two blocks away from your house and the kid's not 16 years old, somehow you're seen as a bad parent in today's world. And and, and so the kids are stuck in their houses. Right. They're not allowed to go out and play and run around the neighborhood for a couple of hours after school. So what do they do? The most interesting, engaging thing they can do in their home. Right. Do something with a screen. It's, it's, it's pretty it's simple. It's stimulating. I mean, we yeah. talk about ADHD and needing stimulation to be able to focus. You know, it makes perfect sense that something that's very visual and exciting and often has, you know, a lot of sound and texture in that way, too, is very engaging for our kids um, who have ADHD. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 a, it's the most stimulating activity that they can have. It's, it's a powerful thing for them to, to do. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's just, it's there. And, 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 and because they're not allowed to do some of those other things, they're not getting out as readily. They're not they're you know, kids, you know, and kids can now play with other kids. But they can be in their own homes. They can be in their own basement playing Call of Duty with their buddies. And so instead of going to someone's house after school, they just all go to their own houses, but they play with each other. So part right. of what I try to encourage kids to do and parents to do in, in this respect is to, um, you know, make sure that the kids, when they're playing online, to play online as much as possible with people they know. So they're going to yeah. see them stay at school. They can talk about that kind of stuff. That's, a, that's, that's really, for us, a form of social play. Yeah, that's a big rule in our house if you're going to be playing and interacting verbally within the game. It has to be people that you know in real life, kids from school who are your friends. Um, Because I think, you know, there's definitely that layer of needing to keep our kids safe and worrying about that aspect of it as well. And so for us, that was one rule that was 
easy to implement that um, I felt like was a good protection for right now at his age. Um, And I think that's another concern for parents in general with technology is how do we keep our kids safe? How do we monitor um, what they're doing? And, And for us, it's having those conversations and making sure that the rules are Um, clearly defined and communicated and that we keep an open dialogue um, about that and what he is doing online so that we have some control over that safety issue. Yeah, you know, the the whole safety issue is 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 incredibly important. It's it's one of those areas that I I have not targeted too much in my writing or my work just because so many other people are focused on that and are far more knowledgeable than I am. Mm-hmm. But I think it's particularly important for kids with attention problems and autism spectrum disorders because some of those kids' judgment about things, their impulsivity. Impulsivity, yeah, that's the you big know, one. The, the, the concerns around understanding social situations and, and those kinds of issues are, are more problematic for some of these kids. So, so as a result, it's understandable how parents of kids with ADHD have real concerns about this, mm-hmm. it's understandable that they might have more concerns than other parents would. So, Yeah, um, yeah. I think, you know, if you're not concerned at all, that's when you have a problem, when you're right. not engaged in monitoring and, and have any, um, uh, you know, a little bit of fear, I think, is a healthy thing for everyone um, in moderation, of course. But, yeah, I think you have to really... You have to have that concern, but you can't let it completely guide or cloud your judgment, I think, in, in technology, because it's, it's, it's a very big part of our kids' lives. You know, we didn't grow up that way, and I think that we often fall into the trap of feeling like their childhood should be, you know, our kids' childhood should be very much like our own childhood, but the world is different now. It's, it, you know, it just can't be exactly like um, our childhood was. They have many more tools. You know, my son was just talking to me a couple of days ago about how lucky I was that we didn't have phones and social media in school because it's hard to um, manage that, especially with impulsivity and um to know that once you put something out there, it's out there forever. And and I said, you're right. It, we were fortunate that we didn't have to deal with that because that's a whole issue in and of itself. It's a whole nother um, aspect for our kids to have to learn how to navigate and navigate appropriately and safely. And so th- there's a lot more, I think, to childhood now that that is more difficult Um but we can't let our our ignorance in those areas or our fear keep our kids from enjoying that and using it as tools. Right. It's not going away. No. You know? And so we've got to do something about it. Uh, you can try and restrict your kids from it, but I mean, you know, kids are walking around now with a, you know, kids are walking around with a smartphone or working walking around with a computer that's far more powerful than the computer they had in the, like in, in, in the in the in the rockets that went to the moon. I mean, in their hand, it's they have access to everything that is out there in the world, and and it's crazy how much 
access they have and and how and how they can get at things now. So it's yeah. like yes, we need to be aware of it, but you know it's not going away. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to use it effectively? How are we going to make it so it helps these kids? That's really where you know my passion is. How are we going to make that happen so we can actually use it to help these kids? To me, in many ways. The most, the most, the best thing that ever happened to people with ADHD is the smartphone, if they use it properly. When yes. used properly, it's an incredible support. Yes. It's just powerful beyond anything that we've ever had before. I mean, back when I was learning about ADHD back in the 1980s, there was this thing called the Gordon system. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's basically they put it mm-hmm. on kids' kids' desks. And essentially, it would sort of beep to sort of remind them to pay attention. But now you get a cell phone to do so many things in terms of reminding you about what you have to get done and what how to do it. And that, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, even, you know, your cell phone can be a great tool for learning to for just dictating. You know, taking pictures. I'm so thrilled that your son can take pictures of his homework and bring that home with him. For the longest time, I've been arguing with schools like, why don't you let these kids with ADHD just take a picture of what's on the board? Why do they have to write it down so they can lose it or not get it down because they can't do it fast enough? Why can't they just be allowed to snap a picture? Yes. I've been so arguing simple. that point for quite some time myself. Like, yeah. Yeah. So simple. You know, come on. The kids are under their desk t- texting anyway. Why can't they get <laughs> out and just take a picture? Come on. Finally, schools are letting kids do it. But it's like it took forever to make that happen. So Yeah, wow. my daughter started college this year. And in some of her classes, even in college, they are not allowing them to take out laptops to take notes yeah. or other technology. And uh, it just blows my mind. Well, um, you know, there's, there's an interesting piece around that. Actually, there was just a good article in the New York Times about it. And I kind of wrote a response to it called uh, Learning on Laptops. I wrote it on the, on our website just recently, but it was an article in the New York Times that basically said that they, they think that people who are using laptops are not learning as well as people who write notes. And <sighs> my inclination is to say there may be some truth to that. However, it's far more complicated than that. In yeah. certain ways with special needs should be able to use laptops for many different reasons. But yeah. That's a that's a if you, so anyway it, it's actually an interesting article I'd, I'd be interested in your your thoughts and comments about it. I think I, I think I called it laptops while learning yeah and, uh, I'll have to look for that I um my son in sixth grade we tried a new charter school that was for middle and high school um, here and it was the first that had. And still the only, I believe, that has high school and a charter. Um, and unfortunately, it was not a good fit for him. It did not turn out to be. But they were very stuck on a study that showed that handwriting things, mm-hmm. I guess, led to better memory or better right. learning. Yes. You know, there was a study and and I it was so difficult because with dysgraphia, there's so much more that goes into trying to handwrite and have it legible. And, you know, he's missing three quarters of the class period because he's still trying to write down what was talked about in the first quarter, you know, and that was something that I could never get over that hurdle with this particular school. And he's having to work so hard. He's using so many cognitive resources just to write. He doesn't have anything left to listen. Exactly. So, so, You know, for some kids, this may be true, and there's there's some data. You know, I I know I'm familiar with the study that they're talking about, but it's not true for all kids. And there's some, and there are other ways 
to look at this as well as other ways to use technology. But that's probably for another discussion for us when, when we yes. have time to, to do. But. Yeah, I would definitely like to have another podcast chat with you in the future and talk more about, especially, I think, assistive technology, because that's a, a really big area that's quickly developing and I think would be really powerful for a lot of our audience's children. Um, so real quickly, I want to let everybody know they can find you on learningworksforkids.com. I will have link to that in the show notes, as well as links to any resources that we've discussed. And um, I believe you guys have a Facebook page and some other things. And and so our listeners can go to parentingadhdandautism.com slash 025, and they will be able to get all of that information and link up to you and your work and hopefully take full advantage of your website because it is really a fantastic tool. If you're wondering about a particular game or app, there's great information about them there, but there's also great tools to find apps that help with certain things as well. So I would encourage all the parents to visit your site and, and visit it repeatedly because I think it's a really good resource to have um, in their arsenal for working with um, kids who have challenges. Was there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up here? No, I mean, you know, we'd love to have people kind of, like I said, like I said, check out our website. We've got a, uh, we're LW4K on Twitter, Facebook uh, is, is also LW4K. And we've got a pile of, cool pinterest pages as well actually awesome. i think on facebook is learning works for kids come to think of it. sorry it's pinterest that's lw4k okay uh, i'll link so, them all up yeah yeah I, I can send that send you that information but you know we've got a lot of you know valuable stuff and uh, you know i really appreciate you asking me to to be on the podcast i've i've enjoyed reading some of your work and i and i see some Thank of the you. stuff that you've done on attitude that really helps parents i mean i think you really have a real good perspective on what it's like for a parent to have a kid with ADHD and a realistic view, which is something that sometimes people don't have. And I appreciate that. So I think that's, thank you. I'm looking forward to, you know, having you uh, write about this so we can share with our audience as well. So that's great. Awesome. Well, let's wrap up today and we will definitely get together and make a plan to do this again and, and explore this topic some more. I know that you and I, and I both could talk, four days probably about this because you know it's a passion and we want to help kids and families and so um, it's easy to talk about for a long time but I know that you have an appointment to get to so with that um, we will wrap up this episode and I will see everybody on the next episode of the Parenting ADHD podcast Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.